This week on Writers Inc. The sky's the limit for indie authors. I mean, just think about it. Um, I didn't know this was possible, that you could self-publish your own book. I mean, when I started writing my book, I was trying to get a, a, one of the big shot New York agents, and then I realized how much you had to pay them. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. So what's new, JD? Dude, I've got a door. Yeah, tell me about this. <laughs> <laughs> now, so, like, you know, we've been doing this renovation on the house, and my office started off as the dining room for what was originally like a 1920-something, you know, 900-square-foot little house that expanded over the years. Um, I ended up taking, I guess about eight or nine feet out of our kitchen, which was really big and made my office, I got to measure, but it's pretty decent size. Um, but for the longest time I didn't, you know, it was wide open to the rest of the house. So we, we had a wall built, um, to separate it. And then there was this big gaping hole where the door was supposed to go. And I wanted French doors, but I wanted, uh, like opaque glass on them. And I didn't realize that this was a big deal, but apparently they had like special order them. And instead of it being like a, a Home Depot, you know, something you throw in the back of the truck, it took like four months to get these doors in. <laughs> so my, my door finally went in yesterday and I'm, I'm looking at it and it, it, is, it is awesome. Um, <laughs> trying, trying to teach my two-year-old that, you know, when the door is closed that, you know, like daddy's working, but like she spent a good half hour, like laying down on the floor on the other side this morning going, I see Dada. I see Dada. <laughs> so anyway, I, I did my little door happy dance today. That's, What's going on with you? Yeah, it's going to be disappointing that we don't get as much construction noise as we used to get. But what are you going to do, right? Well, he, we, we've got one guy here working and he's, you know, he's got a mask on, he's got gloves on and he's putting baseboard in. So if anything, you might hear a nail gun. All right. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> there he goes. I don't know if you heard that. Yeah, I had a, a mini milestone this week that I hadn't planned and I was excited to tell you about it. Uh, I had a 10,000 word day this week in drafting and I'd never done that before. 10,000 words in one day. Yes. That's crazy. I thought it was crazy too. I hadn't planned on it. <laughs> like I'm, I'm not motivated by like word count. That's usually not how I operate. But I sat down, I was working on this nonfiction project. And for some reason for me, nonfiction is so much easier to dictate than fiction. So I just plugged the microphone in and I'm like, okay, I'll knock out a few, a few passages. And I look up and it's like 6,000, 7,000 words. I've gone through like four or five passages. And I'm like, shit, I'm going for 10. Why not? And, uh, and, I, and I did it. It was the first time I ever did it. It was kind of crazy. Wow. Well, congratulations. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, yeah. So I, I had, um, I think about 4,000 the other day and it was, I, I sent that book off to Kristen, the one that I've, I've been working on oh, yeah. we wrote the ending on like four or five times. Um, she kept emailing me like, as she read it, like she read it in like a day, she's like, I'm sweating like this whole time. It's like the pacing is insane and this and that. And then she, she goes quiet for like a half a day over the weekend. Uh -oh. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh no, something's wrong. And she's like, I absolutely love the book, but we have to talk about the ending. Oh no. <laughs> so we got on the phone for a good hour or so. And, um, you know, I tend to overcomplicate things, you know, like I, I, I see where the book could end. And then I'm like, but if this happens, oh, okay. you know, and, and then I throw another twist and another twist and another twist. And, you know, I, I ended up with like maybe 20,000 extra words of, of those twists at the end of the book where it really didn't need to go on. I just, you know, I was having fun with it. I didn't yeah. want to get rid of the characters just yet. Um, so I ended up rewriting it one more time. Um, I did that on Monday. Uh, and that was, like I said, about 4,000 words, I guess, total. Nice. Um, you know, a little cut and pasting from, from other places and things like that. But I think I yeah. finally nailed it and got it, got it done. Nice. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about can you talk yet about your pre-order that just went up recently? Uh, oh, the the new one, yeah, with Patterson. Yeah, um, yeah. It's called a coast uh, the coast to coast murders. Um, it's a psychological thriller, and it, it's an insane ride. Um, you know, we we'll probably talk about this a little bit more as we get closer to publication date because it comes out in September. Uh, but when when Jim and I first started talking about writing a book together, uh, you know, he told me he, he uses outlines religiously, and you know, I told him I never have before. <laughs> um, 
and I, I didn't think we'd be able to work it out, but he, he, you know, he agreed to do that book without an outline. And, and we had so much fun. Um, at the same time, we ended up with a ton of words on the cutting room floor. So I think I, I kind of saw his point and, and he wasn't shy about, you know, pointing out you know, <laughs> every, every time we did drop one of those paragraphs or a word, you know, it's wasted time. Um, I'm sure he's not shy about pointing anything out. <laughs> no, no, he's, he's, he's a phenomenal teacher and he, he, he definitely doesn't bite his tongue at, at any point, I don't think. Um, but yeah, but we had so much fun writing this book and it comes out, um, I think it's September 21st. It's called Coast to Coast Murders and the, the links are up on my website. Uh, I think it just went out on NetGalley. If any of our listeners are, are you know, advanced reviewers and have access to NetGalley. Um, and ARCs are, are kind of up in the air right now because they're printed and they're sitting in a warehouse um, somewhere. I'm not sure where they, Little Brown keeps them, but um, they don't have access to them because everything is, is shut down. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're hoping beginning of the month, they're going to be able to start kicking out the, the physical ARC copies. Awesome. That's exciting, man. Congrats on that. That's, that's Thank fantastic. You. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a fun one to write for sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, we got a, a, a different kind of interview this week. Uh, Ramona Robinson is our guest and figured I kind of, uh, clue everyone in because, uh, Ramona is, uh, had a long and storied career as a broadcast journalist and is sort of an icon here in Cleveland because she uh, was the head news anchor uh, for the evening news on on multiple networks over over the past couple decades and uh, had the opportunity um, to, to interview her. So uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to the talk. She's kind of in a position where she is in what she's calling her second act. So she had sort of her first career and now she's transitioning into becoming a full time writer. And, okay. uh, and I thought that's, you know, that's going to be really interesting to our listeners who, um, whether it's their first act or second act, this idea of transitioning or moving from, from one career to another is something everyone, uh, everyone can relate to. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to hear this. Yeah. All right. So then, so we'll get into this and then, um, and then we'll come back on the other side and talk about some takeaways. Perfect. All right. Yeah. Oh my gosh! I listen yeah. to so I You're love a big podcast listener. I love podcasts, <laughs> and I and I want to do my own, but um, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. It's just it's it's such a great way to connect with people. I mean, I'm yeah. sure in all the years you you've you have this happen to you all the time. People come up to you, and they start talking to you like you've been yeah. friends for years. Yeah. And yeah. podcasting is the same way. You're in someone's ear oh. routinely. And what's great about podcasting is people will listen to podcasts while they're walking the dog or doing the laundry. Well, I'm and... usually working out. That's why I know <laughs> I do 30 minutes and I'm like, Jay, you're done already. I've got 10 more minutes because I'm looking down. I'm, I'm disappointed because I'm not done. So, well, we'll see what I can do about that. No, just, I'll throw a few more questions that's in there. That's all right. <laughs> you know, I you listen to the podcast, so you know that I don't typically start chronologically in the beginning but for your story i kind of have to uh 10 girls and one boy oh my goodness. oh my goodness tell me about that oh my i um <laughs> i grew up in the backwoods of rural missouri with uh nothing but a hope and a prayer that one day i could become a journalist like my idol walter cronkite uh, the only problem was um, no one in my community of 212 people, <laughs> 12 being my family, <laughs> and uh, it was just, it was a madhouse around, you know, where I lived. And I lived in, in what was described as the sticks, because for a long time, we didn't even have a, a post office. We went to a nearby town to get our mail, a nearby town to wow. get groceries, to shop. And um, I, uh, growing up, we would literally have to go almost to St. Louis, which was 200 miles away, to get McDonald's. So I, I didn't get McDonald's. All the things that kids enjoyed, I didn't get them because we lived in this small town that basically you would stumble upon off the highway, Route 57, I believe. Wow. So is... A, a dirt road to somewhere. I'm sure that title uh, ties into that, your memoir. You know, I cannot take claim for that, that title. I struggled with what to name that book. And um, New York Times bestselling author Regina Brett um, read my book. And three chapters in, she said, I've got it, Ramona. Because there's a, a part in the book where my mom says, I'm raising all of you 
back here on this dirt road that leads to nowhere, but you are going somewhere. <laughs> and Regina was like, oh, <laughs> a dirt road to somewhere. And I was like, how come I couldn't see that? It's staring me right there. So that was the difficult part. I don't know if you've had that problem writing books. Picking the title is just... I mean, yes. this, this book had like 10 different titles. I'm sure. And Regina yeah. said, you don't have to use it, but I think this is it. And so obviously yeah. she was right. Oh, that's a, that's a, it is a great title. And, and uh, I don't know if you've experienced this in, in both your books, but you get so close to the project <sighs> and you can't see certain things that people from the outside go, oh, it's this. Well, you know, uh, Jay, the one thing you can't see because you're so close to it is the mistakes or the typos. Yes. Now, I'm a stickler coming from television. <laughs> I don't like to see typos in a book. And everyone around me keeps telling me from editors, publishers, you know, it's okay. Every book has typos. But I'm like, no, I don't want any typos in my book. But you just can't see them. Even after you have beta readers, you have your friends, your family, read them. You know, I must have read this book 20 times. Right. And uh, so when it came out and no one said there were any typos, literally two years later, I'm reading yes. a chapter in my book. And I, see, <laughs> I was like, how can I miss this? So I've learned to just calm down. It's okay. No one's perfect and there are going to be typos. Absolutely. And if, I don't know if you've done this, but if you go on Amazon and you look for some of the classics, you know, whether uh, To Kill a Mockingbird or uh, Catcher in the Rye, and you look at yeah. the one-star reviews, <laughs> and people find typos and they find grammar errors. So I know. And you know. I'm afraid of reviews. You know, I, on Amazon, I have all five-star reviews, and people tell me, you should have some three and four star. I mean, it's hard to tell people to give you a three right. or four star. But they said that's more legitimate. But um, so far, no one has said, oh, this book has a typo. I don't think people care. A good story yeah. is a good story. That's true. That's so true. I think yeah. readers will tend to forgive little things here or there. And, and we all know, too, that uh, the best writing doesn't necessarily make the best book. Yes, right? Exactly. The quality of the writing doesn't necessarily mean it's a great book. And a lot of people tell me they can hear my voice in my books. Oh, and that's I great. love that because I use quite a bit of, um, well, not a lot of slang, but I talk the way I talk. And, you know, I don't have that television anchor speak. <laughs> <laughs> You're a real person. I'm a real person. And people love that. It's like, let your guard down, let your hair down. Yeah. Well, I, I did want to talk a, a little bit about that because you've had such a storied career in broadcast television and, and just so many acclaims. But I'm sure the one you're really proud of is Ramona's Kids, uh, and something you started at WKYC uh, here in Cleveland and when you were there. And I wonder if you could talk about what that is and what you do. Well, I, um, when I came to Cleveland, um, you may be aware, Jay, I, I was the first black woman hired to become a primary evening news anchor, something that I had worked so hard to achieve was to become a, an evening anchor in a large market. And so for me, that was, that was huge. But the, and I, the one thing I didn't like about Cleveland was all of the television stations, when it came to kids, all we reported on were negative stories, yes. you know, truant kids, kids being, you know, caught with drugs in schools, kids, you know, going to, to jail for horrific crimes. And, and yet I would spend my time speaking to kids in the schools and I wasn't seeing the kids that we were portraying on television news. And so it, it was as if we were saying to kids, you had to do something wrong to make a local newscast. And so I decided to change that. I wanted to um, highlight the positive things that our kids are doing. We have remarkable kids out there. Now that you're no longer behind the desk, uh, what, what's your role with Ramona's Kids? What's happening? Well, what I've done, I've kind of parlayed it into my book, A Dirt Road to Somewhere. I have a program called Finding Your Somewhere that I've taken to the schools. And my book is in six different school districts. And what's done is it's required reading. And once the kids read the book, I go into the school and talk to them about 
real life stories. And kids are eating the book up. I mean, I wrote it for, for adults, um, well, 12 and up, but uh, kids love this book because it deals, it starts with my childhood, you know, the bullying, growing up poor, the teasing, um, um, having a pet pig <laughs> that we end up ended up slaughtering and had to have it for dinner. And, oh no! Yeah, they they think it's really funny. It traumatized me for life. <laughs> I didn't eat bacon for a long time. Finally, <laughs> well, the love of bacon just overcame me. But um, they love those kind of stories, and they also love the. Um, once I did what every parent, every person in, you know, leader in school tells you to do, you know, go to school, get an education, get training in something, and then you'll be able to get a job. And so then when they see I do all the right things, and then I can't get a job after I graduate, <laughs> I mean, and they're like looking at me like, you went through this? And so when I tell them, you know, I'm, I'm real with them. Um, you can do all the right things in life and sometimes life isn't fair. And I learned that when I was 25 years old, fired in South Carolina, and for me, I did nothing wrong. I did all the right things, but sometimes life isn't fair. And even in the office, you can uh, work hard, work harder, work smarter, do everything. And then someone else who slacks off or half comes to work, they get the promotion that you wanted and it's just, it, how are you going to deal with that? How do you handle that and those setbacks? And so that's what my book is about. And it's just moving and motivating people to know that, you know, through hard work and determination, you know, you can make it. And don't get sidetracked and off of, you know, what other people are doing. You are an individual uniquely made by, um, for me, my Lord and Savior. So there is no other Ramona Robinson. So I might as well try and be the best me that I can be. That's wonderful. And it's, uh, what, what, what's great, I think, about what you're doing is, uh, you know, the memoir is, is clearly something that's resonating with uh, people and, and kids, yeah. as you've mentioned. And your new book uh, yes. th that's out, um, one of the phrases that I saw in there was staying in your lane and this idea of a second <laughs> act. So um, let's talk about how you're helping people at the other end of the spectrum. Uh, so maybe people in their 40s or 50s or even 60s who are want to change. Well, so many, uh, especially women, um, and, and you might know this, I read a study, I think they said as, as many as 86% of people go to jobs they hate. I believe that. Well, I didn't, Jay. <laughs> I'm thinking that many people cannot be unhappy on the job. That stat is wrong. I was thinking that's kind of low. I don't know. <laughs> But I thought, no way. And so when I started to talk to people, there are a lot of unhappy people driving down the highway going to work each day. And then when you add kids to the mix and the stress that they go through. And so I think a lot of people, especially on social media, because I'm really active um, with my, uh, my friends on social media. And so when they, they talk to me about, you know, Ramona, you left corporate America, you left a job that you loved, and you know, you, you're now in your second act, you seem to be enjoying it. You know, I want to do that, but I'm so fearful, and I fear that it won't work out, and I fear, fear, and I hear that over and over again. And, and in my new book, I try and answer where that tenacity, that uh, stick-to-itiveness, that, you know, that gut thing that I have when and I knew, and I used to always say this to my colleagues, because they would say, oh, Ramona, you know, when do you think, uh, or how long do you think you'll work in the business? And I would always say, the day I walk into those doors and say, you know, this just isn't it for me anymore. You know, the Lord is pulling me, wanting me to do something else. And that happened. And my husband was terrified. He was like, now, wait a minute. <laughs> you make a good salary. <laughs> and this is all you've ever you known. You had a lot invested in your yes. career. And he was like, and you're saying that, you know, you don't. And at the time, I, I was working part time. And he was like, you're only working a couple of hours a day. And I said, but I just feel like there's something more I should be doing to serve people. And I 
I have always loved writing and I want to write. You know, as a little girl, I told you I live so far away from town, I never got a chance to go to a library. Do you know where I would get my books from, Jay? No. And, and this makes me emotional. I would go into the neighbor's trash. He was a little well off more than you know we ever um, were and so I would dig in his trash because I knew he loved to read Wow and that's where I would find I found Charlotte's Web I found um, the Reader's Digest uh, I would find books and magazines and 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 I craved reading um, and so that's how I got my books and wow. then it wasn't until um, when I was bust I think in 67 or 68, I was bused to a nearby all-white school, and I noticed that, oh my gosh, they had, <laughs> they had books, and they didn't have to share. When I went to an all-black school, we had to share books and take turns doing our homework, and so um, it was just amazing. It was like night and day, and we could actually check books out and take them home, and they were our books to keep, and so... Um, I just, I craved writing because I loved it. I loved getting lost in, in fairy tales and fantasies and, um, I'm sorry. I, I, some things just no, trigger no, it's fine. that emotion it's... when I think back to uh, the beginning and how difficult it well, was. Well, it makes sense. I mean, hearing you describe it, 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 it makes sense to me why you would want to pursue that uh, at yeah. this point in your life. And so that's, that was what I had always wanted to do. And, and so I knew that there was so much fear with people feeling stuck. Like, I don't know if I can go out on my own. You know, I have children, I have a mortgage, you know, I have cars. And, and even when we did, and I'm writing about that in my third book, how immediately people were like, are you selling your house? Uh, are you are you going to sell those luxury cars? I might be interested. And I'm looking at them like, what? <laughs> it was like... Oh, if you're leaving television, then obviously you're going to be getting rid of something. <laughs> it's like realtors were putting notes in my mailbox wow. saying, uh, if you want to sell. And it's like, <laughs> please, people, I'm not selling my home or my cars. I'm, I'm fine. Thank you. Uh, and so I think that's the fear of what's on the other side. Will I be able to do this? And sometimes you've just got to step out on faith because my books are, are faith-based about walking in faith and not fear. And make sure you have a plan. So many people don't have a plan. And you probably see this even in marketing. They have no idea how they're going to market the book. They call me up and they think I have hired someone to market <laughs> my book. And it's like, no, you have to do the hard work. It's you out there greeting people and, and speaking and showing up at events, right? That's yes. all on you. It's on me. And even uh, for your listeners who maybe you've um, just written a book or you're thinking about writing a book, really do your homework. And right now, if you haven't already, you know, join social media, engage with people because I can tell you being a television anchor for so many years, I would get like 20, 30 books probably every six months. And I would get calls or emails. And some of the things, just to give you an example, um, I would get a call from a young man around the holidays, somewhere between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And he said, I just wrote a book. I'd love to come on your channel and talk about my book. It's about, you know, dads who leave their children and the children are left scarred. And, and, and I'm thinking, but it's the holidays. No, <laughs> no one wants to, you know, the timing is important. No one wants to hear that. And I said, well, do you belong to an organization or whatever? And I was very kind to him. And I tried to give him some ideas of maybe you should join um, a, a group of men, maybe a, 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 a men's organization where um, they actually help other students. They serve kids who've been abandoned by maybe their fathers. Uh, because I knew like 100 black men every holiday, they have an event where they buy toys for underprivileged kids. And I said, so if you get involved in something like that and then call me and say, hey, Ramona, uh, we're going to be giving back toys and um, 
this is what my book centers around. Then we've got a story. A gentleman who was abandoned himself now wants to give back to other kids. That's a story around the holidays that's uplifting. Yes. And so the bells were going off. Ah! And someone who really did it right was an author who had just written a book, and it was a book of poetry. And, you know, that's really hard. You're calling a television station saying, I want to come on and talk about Read my, my poetry. poetry. Yeah. <laughs> but what she did was she was also a second grade teacher. And she said, I use my poetry to reach the kids. They love it. As a matter of fact, they wear costumes and act out some of the scenes I have in my po And I'm thinking, she said, I know you do Ramona's kids. Um, you know, come to my classroom. This I'm telling you this would make for a great story. And sure enough, we brought the cameras to her classroom and it was great and we were able to say, you know, she will be appearing at, um, at Nighttown, you know, a night spot here in Cleveland, uh, reading her poetry. And so those are good examples and not the people who, like, you know, the other day a woman said, um, she's not a friend of mine on, on Facebook, but she messaged me on Facebook and said, um, I'd love to do a women's conference with you and maybe a, a pop-up shop. <laughs> I'm like, who are you? Who are you first? Or the one who said, I need for you to give me a testimonial. I've written a book. And so, wow. yeah, I know some people are just, and I don't know, maybe they just don't know how you should do it. and the How that's interpreted by the person they're asking yes. to. Exactly. Yeah. And so you have to be willing to serve other people and not just take, take, take. So how did you, I mean, you don't have to get super personal, but how did you, like day one, you've left your job and now you're <laughs> sitting in your home office and you're thinking, what did I just do? <laughs> how did well, you get past that? Since my books, <laughs> since my books are about uh, walking in faith over fear, I, I don't want to tell the truth, but I'm going to tell the truth. <laughs> I was sitting there like, oh, hell, what have I done? What have I done? Um, but I just knew it was like the voice was telling me, hence my book, Your Voice is Your Power. Uh, it was God telling me that if this is what you want, if this is going to be your second act, then you can be successful. And J.I.O. Running knew, I know without a doubt, anything I put my mind to, I'm gonna be successful at it. And there might be some bumps in, a, in the road, maybe an idea I had fails, or because I've had a lot of failure in my life, and so I just go to the next idea, or tweak it here or there. Um, and I think those are the things sometimes that, that scare people. And, and I've never really feared not having enough because I've lived that life. And my mom taught me, you know, at an early age, um, you know, an education and hard work. That's the way out of poverty. And I never wanted to go hungry again. <laughs> so that was, that's the thing that keeps me working hard. Um, and uh, I did. I, I was afraid at first. And I just started writing and it all just, it made sense. Like, yeah, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Uh, were there any of your uh, former colleagues who, you know, maybe re reached out to you several weeks or months later and said, oh, Ramona, seems <laughs> still warm. You want to come back? I, they, all, they all have. And more, more so viewers, you know, when I see them on the street, when are you going back to television? And I was like, you know, I gave you guys 30 years. Isn't that enough? Aren't you tired of seeing me? But I do have my, my former colleagues call me up all the time and they'll go, what are you doing? And I said, you know, it's almost time for my four o'clock nap. <laughs> we hate you, we hate you. So I just, uh, Jay, I tell you, I miss the people, yeah. but I, I don't miss, you know, the 12, 14 hour days, sure. somebody calling you, do this, telling you, I work for myself and I love it. Is Tim still in the business? No, Tim is back in, um, he splits his time between Wyoming and Washington, D.C. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. We keep in touch, though. He's doing great. It was great. I, uh, I know local viewers, listeners will know this and, and others won't, but I was I loved the little segment that I, uh, WKYC did with you and Tim I, about a year or so ago 
for their yes. 70th anniversary. Yes. And you two were on talking about uh, some of your favorite moments. And, and so what's, uh, you mentioned 9-11 in the interview is profoundly uh, changing. Yeah. What, what other uh, moments in your career are you really proud of or very memorable for you? I just think, you know, Tim and I, um, first of all, when we uh, anchored together, we were number one in the market. We reigned supreme. <laughs> we were just a, a, a great uh, combination. But the thing I loved about, and I still love about Tim, Tim and I could talk about any and everything, and there were really no barriers. And we come from different walks of life, and you know, him a, a strict um, uh, military guy and uh, Air Force general. <laughs> and we spent a lot of time talking about race. And it's really hard to talk about race, especially someone, you know, of a different <laughs> ethnicity. And so um, we just, a lot of times we agreed and we agreed to disagree, but we were talking about um, all the different, hang-ups and the nuances of, of people and why, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, I would, um, I did this segment with the Cleveland Browns called Spirit of the Browns. I would um, basically follow one of the Browns players doing what they would like to do off the field. And so I was in movie theaters playing <laughs> video games. It's amazing, the grown men who play video games. I was so bored playing video games. But you know, they wanted me to interact with the player. And um, these players were so um, funny and kind. And, and uh, But when I would go to the training facility and go into the lunchroom where they all would be eating, it was all the white players would be eating together and all of the black players would be eating together. And Even in that organization? Yes, huh? and it's not that they were racist, <laughs> it's just that kind of, you know, birds of a feather flock together or you know maybe the the white players would have country music blasting over on their side and then there'd be rap and whatever and it's just like yeah I don't think it was intentional and sometimes you'd see a few white players stray on over and join some but I was just amazed at even there when they're not on the field it's 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 separate and so until we talk about these things, why we do what we do, and, and so many people are so quick to jump to, oh, they don't talk to us, so they're racist. Or, or, well, no, sometimes you're just comfortable, and you have to make a concerted effort to walk over and be a part of another conversation. How did we get off on that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm, now I'm just oh. trying to picture you playing like, you know, Gears uh, of War with Joshua Cribbs <laughs> or something. I <laughs> and I did. I'm like, please tell me something. We're doing something exciting today and not playing video games. But sometimes they'd love to bowl. And, and I used to have a bowling average of like one anywhere from 150 to 160. Whoa. Yeah, so I would smoke them. They weren't, expect <laughs> they weren't expecting that. Yeah. Uh, well, so I, I'm sure you're not playing video games on a regular basis. No, so not at all. What does your typical day look like now, or is there a typical day? Um, well, you know, I do a lot of speaking, and um, I think I know that's why my author biz was so successful um, the first year. I mean, it just soared because um, I was doing a lot of speaking, and I love that too. And so I was in my element, and finally, you know, the some of the um, things I couldn't talk about, I had to always be objective oh, right. in television. Uh, now I could say whatever I wanted <laughs> to say. It's like, she, they've let her loose now. And so um, I just, I love that. But a typical day for me is, I'm not probably like most writers. I think I heard JD say um, that he's writing two books. Yes. Yeah, so um, I am writing two books, and um, one is on like faith and finance, and the other is my children's book that I've always wanted to write. And it's really hard to switch so back and forth. So it was interesting to hear how JD does it and how he's you know goes from one book to another. But a typical day for me is 
I think I do my best writing at like 6 a.m. Yes. When the dogs are asleep and my husband's asleep and no one's bothering me, no distractions. Right now, I just don't have a favorite place that mm -hmm. I like to write. I write all over the house, in the bedroom, in the living room. When it's warm, I'll go outside and write. But I kind of want a designated area to write in. And so that's what I do. I grab my coffee early in the morning and I start writing and um, that's when my mind is clear and I don't know about you, but writing for me is so therapeutic. It is. It's and like another form of meditation or prayer or, or just mindfulness. Yeah, and I'm an emotional creature in case you hadn't noticed. <laughs> I cry a lot while I'm writing because <laughs> I think back to Gloria and when she wanted to beat me up. <laughs> I know a kid recently asked me, they said, you talk about the girls that were bullying you and they wanted to fight you and, and you had to fight. Uh, what would your 15-year-old self say to them now? I was like, girlfriend, you do not want to know because <laughs> I would take no prisoners today. <laughs> We'd have to bleep out the podcast, yes, wouldn't we? Yes, you would. <laughs> Messing with me. Well, I, it's, I'm, I'm so interested in, in the children's book, and it, I, I don't know if you saw this, but I'm fairly certain LeBron James is getting ready to publish a children's book. Oh, is he? I'll have to make sure mine does not coincide with the release of it. <laughs> or it should maybe, right? Yeah, the oh, tailwind yeah. on yeah. that, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but he, you know, he is, uh, he's such a fascinating guy. And, and you and I both being in Cleveland um, during his career have seen him become iconic. Mm -hmm. and, and it's more than what he does on the court. It's more also about his business sense. Have there any been observations or things that you've noted in being in media and, and watching him and saying, wow, that's, that's really smart or that's a really wise decision or, or anything like that? I, I noticed, I met LeBron when he was 15, I believe, a sophomore uh, in school. I met him at a Browns game. Um, he was standing outside one of the suites. And I just remember walking up to him saying, hello, young man, and how shy he was. He kept looking down. He really wouldn't look me in the eye. And um, I sh you know, shook his hand, introduced myself, and said, you know, good luck to you or whatever. And then fast forward, you know, I'd had, I think I interviewed LeBron three or four times, but fast forward, um, I'm sent to New York to interview him right before he goes on to host Saturday Night Live. And so I interview him then, and I even said to him, I was like, LeBron, remember when you were 15, you couldn't even look me in the eye? And now he's standing there like a man, you know, speaking, looking directly at me with such authority. And, uh, and he was like, yeah, I remember that. And, and I've just, you know, watched him grow and seen him a couple of times off the, the court and the things that he's doing, his I Promise School in Akron is just phenomenal. Just imagine if we had a lot more people do that for our, our kids. And I think just the other day, um, he announced that he'd be sending them all to college free of charge. Wow. Yeah, it's, he, he is just an amazing individual. So even when I hear people complain about LeBron leaving Cleveland, I, was, I cut them off. I said, don't yeah. talk about LeBron to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I am so, and unless you are going to do what he's doing for others, I, you know, basketball is basketball, but it's how you serve other people. What are you doing? How are you trying to leave this world better than you found it? That's what's really important. Yeah. And he transcends sports, and I think you heard it when he originally left the first time, you heard it from the people in Akron. Yeah. The people in Akron were almost universally behind him because exactly. that's his community and they know, they knew what he did for them. And, and yeah. it's really powerful. And we had a few idiots who burned his, oh, did I say idiots? <laughs> that's right, I'm no longer on television. I'm not behind the news I desk. can you call can somebody that. an idiot. <laughs> who burned his jersey. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, the national media picked that up. Everyone in Cleveland, they're burning. Please, people. Yeah. Oh, I'm talking about <laughs> the medium in which I spent <laughs> decades. I'm terrible now. I'm really terrible. <laughs> well, you'll, if, if you uh, time your children's book correctly, you'll be in good company. Yeah. So that, that's something to look I'll forward to. I'll have to, to call him up and say, hey, tweet this. Yes. 
<laughs> remember when you were that 15-year-old boy? Yes. <laughs> remember how kind I was? <laughs> uh, I think one of the, uh, I think I'd like to kind of pull the conversation um, together here with a question that's one that we ask a lot of our guests and uh, someone who is, is now in the publishing industry and doing great things. If, if you look out five or 10 years, what does the future of publishing look like to you? I think it's um, the sky's the limit for indie authors. I mean, just think about it. Um, I didn't know this was possible, that you could self-publish your own book. I mean, when I started writing my book, I was trying to get a, a, one of the big shot New York agents, and then I realized how much you had to pay them. <laughs> I, and then, you know, I did. I, I, I ended up having a traditional publisher who wanted to publish my memoir, um, but the control that that they would have, you know, the cover, the name of the book, and, and the things that they wanted to do. And then I just thought, I don't want to lose that kind of control over my story. It was so personal to me. So uh, again, I think the door is wide open for indie authors. Um, I would just hope that they, you know, do their homework. Do your homework uh, before you decide to write a book, because it's not just about writing the book, getting it done. You're not done. It's just beginning. <laughs> and there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think it's it's only going to get better. You know, I've done an audio book. I'm told that you know audio will grow, um, and I hope it does, because right now my audio book is doing well. But I'd like to see it do a little bit better, and. Um, I'm just looking forward to it. Yeah. Do you see yourself self-publishing from this point on unless there's some major catalyst? I can't (laughs) see. I mean, I just can't see myself doing a traditional. I would never say never. I mean, it it would depend on the deal because I'm pretty savvy when it comes to that kind of stuff. Yeah. I learned early on that people assumed, you know, a pretty face meant you weren't very smart and they could take advantage of you. No. They didn't see you eating the bacon <laughs> when you were a kid. They don't know what they were messing with, And right? they didn't see me reading since I was four and five years old constantly. So girlfriend does her homework. <laughs> Good for you. Yes. All right. Ramona Robinson. Uh, now, before we talk about the takeaways, I wanted to mention something because our astute listeners may have may have heard a different uh, audio tone in this interview. Uh, and that is because it's the first one that I did in person. So Ramona lives in Cleveland. We were able to get together at the uh, South Euclid branch of the library and get a, um, uh, like a little meeting room. And we conducted the interview face to face. And I have to tell you, as an interviewer, there's nothing better than that. Uh, if, you, if you take the spectrum of interviews from like an email interview to in person, um, that's from terrible to best <laughs> and because uh, you go email and then phone and then Skype or Zoom and then in person. And uh, you can probably tell we had a great time. Yeah. And, and it's funny you, you say that because until I actually started getting interviewed myself, I never really thought about it that much. But, you know, when you do a written interview, you have to be so careful about your wording and your phrasing because you may say something and like if somebody just reads it the wrong way, you know, you throw a comma in the wrong spot or, or something can be taken in a totally different you know, direction. Um, and, you know, the phone interview is, is kind of the same thing because you don't have those visual cues. You don't right. see the person that you're talking to. Um, so that that's tricky too. And, you know, things like Zoom have definitely made that easier. You know, I do a lot of like Skype and, and Zoom interviews and, and things along those lines. And that helps quite a bit. But, but nothing beats that face to face, you know, like being in the same room with, with that person. Yeah. And, and Ramona, as, as you all heard, is just a fascinating woman, a powerhouse, incredibly intelligent and articulate. Um, what were some of the things that struck you about that conversation? Oh, Jesus. When she said 10 siblings, <laughs> I'm sitting there, you know, like my wife and I, we've got, we've got the one and like, we both look at each other at the end of the day and, and we look exhausted. I can't imagine what life is like in a house with, with 10. Yeah. Uh, my, my mom had a huge family and my father did too. And they, they grew up on farms um, in the, in the Midwest or my mom did anyway. Um, my dad grew up on a farm in Austria. Um, so, you know, it, like that was kind of the norm for that situation. You had more kids because you needed kids to work the field. Oh, right. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, what, what did her parents do for a living? Did she actually say, I, I don't know if I, caught I, I that. don't remember. I, 
I want to say one of them was a teacher. Maybe her, maybe okay. her mom was a teacher, but I don't recall. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that they survived 10 kids is, is, yeah. is, is huge. Um, but, you know, the, the, as adults, I'm guessing that is probably a phenomenal situation to be in, to, to have that many brothers and sisters, you know, running around out there. Because uh, nobody really has their back like a brother or sister in, in the end, you know, at the end of the day. And, yeah. You know, to, to know that you've got that many out there, I think, is, is huge. Um, her giving up the, the TV job to be a writer, uh, you know, like I, I love those kind of stories because, you know, I did it myself. You know, she, she had brought up that 86% of people go to jobs that they hate. Um, <laughs> and, and you mentioned you thought that number was low. And I, and I tend to agree with you. I, I think a lot of people, you know, and I was in that boat, you know, I had a nice paycheck, but it was a job that I could not stand. And I mean, I dreaded, you know, every second of you know, the drive to work, you know, just watching that clock while I was there. But, you know, the, the paycheck, you know, unfortunately, it, 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 it's a driving factor. Um, so for anybody to be able to just, you know, draw a line in the sand and say, okay, I'm giving all this up. I'm going to actually try and chase my dream. Um, I, I think that's huge. And, and I did it. She did it. So many other people have done it. I mean, I, I remember years back when I interviewed Madonna, she said she went to New York with like 20 bucks in her pocket. Like she got off the bus and like, that's all she had. No plan whatsoever. Wow. She, just, she, she knew that if she put herself in that kind of situation, you know, she was at the bottom, like she had to succeed. There was no other choice. And, and I think when you put your, your, your feet to the fire like that, I, I think, you know, it, it does drive you. Um, but not everybody has it in them. And I, and I think, you know, people that do want something else out of their life, you know, if, if they're working a job that they hate or they're in a family situation, if, you know, they're, they're just not happy about whatever, like you, you need to be ready to pull the trigger and make that change. Because before you know it, you know, 20 years have gone by, 40 years, 60 years, you know, and you're sitting in a rocking chair on a porch somewhere going, what if, you know, I, I could have done something differently. And it, it's too late at that point. Life goes by too quick. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I'm definitely in that. Uh, I, I have that wiring too. Like I, I left my full-time job with basically no savings, not much of a plan, uh, with a mortgage and, and two kids in <laughs> private school and, and bills. But like, and I could see someone thinking that is pretty irresponsible, but at the same time, uh, your Madonna story really, really resonates. Like when you have no other choice, you're, you're sort of forced to, to really give it everything you have. Whereas if you have a bit of a safety net, um, I'm not sure you, you fully commit and that's not necessarily a conscious decision. No, no, not at all. I, I think, you know, when, when people are forced to, to do something, I, I think they tend to, to come out on top. Um, and the more of a safety net I think you have, the, the less likely, you know, that is to happen. It doesn't mean that it won't. Um, but I, I think just the urgency starts to, to dwindle, you know, as that safety net increases in size. Yeah. Um, you know, she brought up a couple other good points. I'm just going to kind of rattle them off here. Um, you can't see your own typos. That's 100% true. <laughs> um, nobody should ever try to correct their own work. Um, and, and she does nonfiction and she had mentioned speaking engagements and those can be extremely, extremely lucrative. Um, if you write a nonfiction book, um, you know, because you've got you know, possible television interviews that you can spin off of that. You've got actual speaking engagements where you're going somewhere, whether it's in the corporate world or whatever. Um, you know, and those, those could be anywhere from like 5,000 to 10 to 15 to $20,000 a pop. Um, you know, so depending on the topic of your book, um, I, I think that's huge. Um, and she also mentioned that she does her best writing at six in the morning. And I think that's a lot of, you know, a lot of people, they don't quite figure that out right away. You, you have to, you have to try different times, I think, during the day. Um, most of the people that I've spoken to in the morning seems to be the best. Um, but there's, there's plenty of night owls out there too, that, you know, they do their best after the family's in bed, you know, 10 30, 11 o'clock at night. That's when they, they sit down. Um, so if you're going to try to make this writing thing work, you know, try to figure out the, the best time of the day where you're going to be most creative. Um, and, you know, I, I you shouldn't measure by word count alone, but I think that's a good indicator, you know, of how well you're doing and, and you're going to see a difference. Like I, I used to write after work um, and then I changed it up and I started writing it. Like I would get up about four 30 in the morning. I would write before I went into the office and I, I, I did almost double the, the productivity in, in a fraction of the time, like half the amount of time. Um, so try to find that sweet spot. Uh, and she also mentioned that she doesn't have a favorite place to write. And I, and I think that's actually very important. Um, particularly if you're working a day job and you're trying to get the writing done while you're doing that. I, I think if you have a certain spot in your house where you go to every single time you're going to write and you sit down at that same desk and you, you know, everything is the same, it's a Pavlov's dog thing. Like your brain immediately jumps into that, that writer mode because, oh, you know, we're sitting at our writing desk or we're sitting in our writing corner or whatever. Um, so I think that's important. You know, not, not, not to say that it can't be done somewhere else, but I, I think having that, that one spot where you do it is, is very important. Yeah, totally agree. Um, we're not going to talk about LeBron James on a writing podcast, but I thought that was an amusing <laughs> little anecdote that she told about him. 
uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing in Cleveland, he's, he's, you know, everybody knows that name. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I obviously know the name. I don't follow basketball at all. Um, uh, I, I do remember, I, I think on CNBC, cause he didn't actually play college ball, right? Like he went, he went straight to, to the NBA. Yeah. yeah I, I remember on CNBC cause I was working in the finance uh, world. They, they were talking about that. He was one of the first guys to actually do that. Um, you know, but he's, he's, you know, he's, he's quite the business guy too. I would love to talk to somebody like that, yeah. you know, forget, forget what business he's in. I mean, just the fact that he can put, you know, such a big spin on his career and, you know, marketing, advertising, all these different things that he touches, you know, he, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. He sure does. And I think too, for me that sort of the high level takeaway or theme that I got out of the conversation with Ramona is, is she's so optimistic about this second act or just about trying things in general? Like, uh, a question I hear a lot, especially in the indie community, you probably hear this too, is like, is it too late? Like, did I miss the opportunity to self-publish? And, and Ramona said specifically like, wow, you know, there's still a lot of people who don't even know about self-publishing in 2020. So, so it's never too late. It's never too late to get started. And I love that approach and just that real optimistic outlook. No, but it is changing quite a bit. Like if you go back to the earlier days, you know, it really was wild west and, you know, you could put something out there that was full of typos, you know, with a, a cover that you created on Microsoft word with a little <laughs> bit of clip art. Um, you know, it, it could be garbage and you could still sell back, back then. Um, now everything I think is being held to a much higher standard. And I think that's going to continue. It's, you know, we had talked about this before the traditional and the indie world, I think are combining in a lot of different ways and the quality of your product needs to be on par with the stuff coming out from the other guy. Yeah, as it should be. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I would not dispute that. Awesome. So that uh, that was our conversation with Ramona. Hopefully, everyone enjoyed that, and uh, I, I I certainly did. We we had a blast doing. Yeah. That. Now you you've got something different coming up for next week, right? Yeah, something a little different. Uh, what had happened was I interviewed I interviewed privately. Uh, Sean Coyne and Stephen Pressfield uh, from Black Irish Books. Uh, m many people know Stephen Pressfield as the author of The War of Art. And uh, Sean has been his longtime business partner, editor, agent. Uh, and and they work, they're a great partnership. And I was working on a different project and I interviewed those guys. And I, I was asking them a question about how they decide what projects to work on. And then the, then the project I was working on kind of changed and I've forgotten about it. And I was uh, sort of going through some of my audio files and cleaning some things up and I found it. And uh, it's a relatively recent interview. I think it's less than a year old. And uh, I reached out to Sean and said, hey, I, I know that you guys, you know, weren't prepared to have this put out publicly, but it's a great conversation. Would love to showcase it on the Writers Inc. And he was like, yeah, absolutely go for it. So um, it's, it's a great conversation with both, uh, with both Steve and Sean. Uh, it'll be coming up next week. It's not going to be our typical format, but I think as a conversation, our, our uh, listeners are really going to enjoy. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Great. All right. So to our listeners, uh, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.